Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to Basketball Conference, the ACC Football Podcast. My name is Joey Weaver. He is Mike McDaniel. Mike, season previews rolling on. It's time to talk about my favorite team. Can we talk about the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets? Let's do it. Kelly Quinlan, publisher, jacketsonline.com from the Rivals Network. Kelly, what's going on, man? Welcome back to the pod. It's about that time. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on, guys. Should be a fun season here. Uh, no, no shortage of off-season content for you, especially going through the coaching change that Georgia Tech went through. So we can start it there. Um, Jeff Collins fired last year after four games uh, at the end of you know, three-plus years, basically, in his tenure. Brent Key promoted as the interim. Uh, that went well. Brent Key won four out of eight games. Uh, not sure Jeff Collins could say he won four games in any of the, the previous seasons that he was there. So that was kind of interesting. But I guess let's go back to the coaching search just a little bit. In your opinion, the way that that whole search played out, it seemed like Key was not the number one pick. How, you know, what were your thoughts kind of on the way that that search played out? And do you think that they ended up with a, a really good candidate based on what we've seen so far? So here's my favorite Brent Key stat that I, I love to bring up when they talk about this. Brent Key in his first two games was the first Georgia Tech coach to win back-to-back games since Paul Johnson's last season. Hmm. That's my, my favorite. <laughs> Jeff Collins slash very, Georgia Very Tech specific, stat. you know, very specific. Yeah, it took him literally the first two games he coached to break something that had gone on for three-plus years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it was interesting. The search was very fascinating. I had sort of heard all along that um, the money was behind Brent Key, um, if you want to look at it that way, like the, the people who had the most influence over what was going on. And the reality of it was with the financial situation at Georgia Tech and the fact they had to eat so much money firing Jeff – and they just fired their AD, and they were still kind of digging out of COVID debt and had not made money the previous two years. That everything in my mind was like, if we're making, if you're making a financial decision, you're Georgia Tech. What are you looking at? And you you can kick the can down the road. Brent's got a lot of momentum behind him, a lot of fan support. You can give him an opportunity. Financially, he's not going to like screw you over as much as if you had to go by, you know, Alex Golish, who's the guy that I would have gone after, right? That's at USF now. If you were going to go hire a young buck OC, that was the guy. Or if you were going to go hire the guy from Coastal Carolina, um, whose name I'm blanking out on. Jamie Chadwell. Jamie Chadwell. Yeah, so Jamie Chadwell wanted, you know, $4 million plus dollars. Like, there was... You know, there were a lot of that. There were guys like Matt Rule that were using Georgia Tech as leverage. He was one of the guys who was in the mix. Willie Fritz, who had this weird, very weird situation where, like, it was leaked to the media, I think, intentionally, that he was going to maybe get the job to block it or to eat or just to throw people off. I don't know what that was about because the whole time that was going on, if everyone remembers, I kept reporting that it wasn't happening because that was what I was hearing from the people who had to agree to the hiring of the head coach. And so um, ultimately Angel Cabrera and Jay Back came together and decided to give Brent his opportunity. And the big thing with Brent was that he, he had a plan and he had an idea of how to fix things and do it economically, um, just increasing support staff, building up the program, building organically, recruiting, all of the things you're looking for. Um, he had a plan for it. He had thought all this out. I think to be 
perfectly honest with you, I'm sure he had been thinking about it for, you know, probably 13, 14 months before it happened. Um, I would have said most of the time he had been there under Collins. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think he thought that if things went sideways that this was a possible outcome of it and to have a plan for it. All good coaches have a plan, and he had a plan. He was able to execute, and he got the team to play hard. And, yeah, the proof will be in the pudding now. How does he get them to play every day, and, and what does that look like? But the search was weird, man. And, and J-Bat had things very buttoned up, the AD, and there just were not a lot of leaks out of it. And so you had people kind of – there were even some people, I think, that were sort of guessing as to what was going on, that would people who'd be who would be normally in the loop even um, in, in typical coaching searches or were in the loop when, like, Jeff got hired – and so Jay just kind of went into this bunker and was doing a search. And, and, you know, I have a good relationship with Brent. I'd stayed in touch with him all this. And the one thing he had told me is he would give me a heads up if he was out of it. And I never got that call either. And so knowing Brent the way I did, I, I assume even when, like, you know, Ken Segarra at the AJC was reporting that Willie got hired, that – there was something else going on and I would call pe- other sources and they were like, yeah, nothing. Brent was like, I hadn't heard anything. Like, so at that point I felt pretty confident that it wasn't happening and I wasn't sure why and what was going on. And Jay had always been kind of forthright, forthright with me, but he wasn't going to talk to me about it. So, um, yeah, it was really, it was a weird time, man. Like just watching it all unfold. And then it was even stranger with Damon Stoudemire, the basketball coach, because that went down in like 48 hours, basically. So Jay kind of moves at his own beat. And so I think you saw that with his coaching search. He exhausted everything he was looking at and then came to what I think was the most logical decision. The other thing I've sensed is that there's a lot of mixed opinions within the fan base on, you know, was it a good coaching search? Did they get to the right place? Did they not? You tell, I mean, the thing that I've stuck with basically ever since that I just can't get out of my head is that it was like a Sunday afternoon or a Monday morning that Collins was fired and they, they pulled that trigger and Brent was named the interim. And I just keep thinking back and they had maybe like four practices between then and, and the Pittsburgh game. And so they go from looking, you know, lifeless, incompetent, didn't know where to go, didn't know what to do against UCF on a Saturday and in four practices, then they turn around, go on the road to the defending division champs and go and beat them in their building. And then the following week, beat them, you know, beat Duke. And it's like that team looked totally different after just a few practices. Am I putting too much credence into that? Or should I should I be looking at that as like that tells me something that, you know, this guy knows what he's what he's doing coaching a team? So it's one of two things, right? It's either an indictment on Jeff Collins. Or it's a statement about how good a coach Brent Key is. I think it probably falls in the middle of that. Um, yeah, I mean, they should have beat UCF. They had it, UCF gave them every opportunity in the world to win that game, and they lost, and that was the end of it. They fired Jeff. It was on a Monday. They practiced Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday's a walkthrough, and then they went to the stadium up at Pittsburgh on Friday and did a walkthrough in the stadium. So they basically had two practices, two real practices and a walkthrough. And they went up there and won a game that was touch and go, um, where they weren't playing great. A guy, a guy from Pitt, like dropped three interceptions in the game. They caught a lot of breaks and um, won that game. And then the Duke game was sort of the opposite of that. They were in control and blew it and almost lost the game. Um, 
But, you know, the kids believed, and it would have been, you know, the thing I still go back to is what if Jeff Sims doesn't get hurt at the end of the Duke game? If they're able to control that game, he doesn't get hurt, and he continues playing the way he was playing, they probably beat Miami, and they probably beat um, Virginia Tech. And he went seven games, and then I think it was a no-brainer that Brent gets the job. So it, it was very interesting how that unfolded. I mean, the win at North Carolina was as good a coaching job as I've ever seen in the game against Georgia. Kirby Smart told him. It was like that was a conversation they had at midfield. He goes, that was a hell of a plan you guys came up with, and they scared them. They would have played better in the championship game than TCU did, apparently. Um, had the lead through yeah, like 24 was, minutes of that game. Like, Yeah, I think, like, you know, Ohio State gave them their biggest scare, and then probably Georgia Tech was next, like, for Georgia that season. And um, that was all, like, to me, impressive. Like, that was them coaching on the fly, Justin. I mean, hell, they, you know, got rid of a running backs coach after that and had, like, Another, and he had to patch his O-line coach with his GA who was coaching O-line. And, you know, it wasn't like they were just walking in and things were hunky-dory. They had to do a lot of tinkering with the staff, and he managed all of that and, and got the team to be competitive every day and play tough. Play what I've always considered Georgia Tech football. They were always a tough team with Chan, with so Leary, certainly, with Bobby Ross. Like, that was what they were known for, and – it got back to being that again, which was good to see. Paul Johnson's teams are always like that. Like, punch above your weight, always have a chance when you go into the game. And with Brent, you started to see it, even though you didn't. I mean, we all thought they were going to get smoked at Pittsburgh. There was a whole, like, discussion in the press box for a game. We were sitting there joking around. The pit media all thought they were going to boat race them, and then it didn't happen on the field. It was like going to Virginia Tech the last few years. I'm starting to take what there. And, and play with the backup quarterback against the Hokies. Um, Keep the Virginia Tech slides coming. We love those on this show. <laughs> um, no, it just is always funny to me that the, the string of Georgia Tech backup quarterbacks knocking off the Hokies is <laughs> one of the funniest, um, it just one of the most wanna... improbable things I've ever seen. It's really one of the year they did it with the backup center, the backup yes. quarterback, and the backup running back. That was yep, I was I was lucky enough to be in attendance for that one. Uh, I lost one of so Justin much money on that game. One of Justin Fuente's crowning achievements as head coach, of, of which he had many, was <laughs> losing to Georgia Tech backup quarterbacks. Yeah, the uh, that was the fun game where Frank Beamer was next to me on the other side of the glass in the press box, and I got to watch his reaction to the game unfolding and him oh, no. getting more and more angry. And then he could barely speak in the elevator because ha I happened to get on the elevator with him at the end of the game to go down to the field, and he, I guess, was leaving, and just he was so angry he couldn't speak. So that was very funny. Fuente has a, that effect on people, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> he was probably more – he was more – damaging than even Jeff Collins in some way because Jeff at least recruited talent. Like, I think Virginia Tech is – I think if you talk to Brett Pry, he would tell you they're a little bit devoid of talent right now. That's their main issue. Not, It's not really coaching. I don't think they have a coaching problem. Agree. Um, no, I'm not trying to pick on the Hokies. It's just fun. Uh, no, well, no, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good – well, no, no, it's a good, it's a good transition, you know, with the coaching staff because that's what we are going to get into next. So Brent Key retains Andrew Thacker as his defensive coordinator, and then he brings over Buster Faulkner, who was, you know, he's been a quality control offensive analyst, right, for Georgia for the last number of years. He helped develop Setson Bennett into what he became, kind of out of nowhere, into this, you know, 
he's going to be a college football hall of fame type quarterback just because of his, you know, career accolades alone. Um, what is, you know, what is there to expect of the Georgia tech offense moving forward? Right. Cause I think the long pole in the 10, obviously when Collins took over initially was okay, we are transitioning away from the Paul Johnson option offense. We have to install an offense. that's going to be multiple is kind of what he said at the start. And that just never really panned out. And now Buster Faulkner comes in and it's almost like he in some ways gets a head start on the rebuild because Collins was at least bringing in talent to kind of transition away from the option offense. At least Faulkner doesn't have to do that. But what what are things going to look like offensively and then defensively with Thacker, you know, being retained? How big is that for Brent Key in terms of transition from interim to now, you know, full time head coach? So I would say, you know, on the offensive side of things, it's ever it's NCAA spread multiple formations, the stuff that they were slowly building up to. The issue they had with, with the transition was they didn't they didn't tier their personnel to what they had on the roster, what the strength of the roster was. So, like, they were using their tight ends as basically glorified offensive linemen, even though they brought in a kid from UConn, Tyler Davis, who's playing in the NFL now. Like, they just didn't seem to understand what to do with the personnel that they had. I think Buster's done a much better job even – what we've seen in the spring and in practices of understanding this is what I have right now. This is where our deficiencies are. This is how I'm going to get the ball out quickly. And that was one thing that Georgia was really good at and Todd Munkin was, you know, they played 12, 13 personnel at times, like, because they had a bunch of tight ends and their receivers weren't as great. So how do I figure out the way to get, you know, my best five skill guys on the field at the same time? So I think that's what they're doing now. They have um, some – Mixed experience at receivers, so that's sort of the what I would call a weaker spot on the team right now. Got good experience at running back, experienced tight ends, slots should be decent. So I feel like they're just going to play, and, and they showed in the spring game they would line up in 12 and have two slot receivers on the field instead of outside receivers. Things like that that were more creative, like that's what I've been waiting to see with this. Like you don't have to line up and play 11 personnel and, and pretend like you're an NFL team. As Paul Johnson joked with me the first year, he asked me if the offensive coordinator was playing for draft picks. He's like, he realizes this is college football, not the NFL. You don't get draft picks for tanking. Like, you know, I did like that was his like he didn't understand what they were doing offensively, and he's a smart guy. Like, and I agreed with him. I didn't understand what the hell they were doing either. I think Buster knows what he's doing. Buster's a sharp guy. Buster's been very successful at a lot of different jobs, and he was a guy that was in the the hierarchy there of potentially being a replacement for Todd Munkin down the line. And Mike Bobo happens to be, you know, a, was a foot in front of him. And so he got the job instead of Buster. And so now Buster's at Georgia Tech and he has the opportunity to carve out his own path. I'm sure he still wants to be a head coach. He has got all sort of the things you look for and that stuff. And I think he's going to do a good job. On the defensive side, they have probably 15 of the 22 regular guys on defense back this year. Um, you know, they lost the starting corner. They lost the two linebackers. Um, but returned, and they lost Cam White, who got drafted on the defensive line. But Go Pats, They bring Sylvain Yondogen, who was as effective as Cam White in a lot of games. Um, they bring in, you know, three transfer linebackers who all played a lot. Braylon Oliver at Minnesota. Uh, Dre White from AM and then Paul Maiola from Idaho slash Notre Dame, who was a really heralded recruit as a safety and now plays Sam linebacker and play weak side linebacker. 
they got some dudes. Uh, I think defense will be okay. I'm worried about one of the – I'm a little worried about corner when I look at it. I just – you know, Miles Sims was pretty good last year. He had a bad spring because he was dealing with some injuries. He's got a bounce back. And Kenyatta Watson, Kenan Johnson, probably fighting for that other corner spot. Or that, Those three guys will probably be the base corners out of that, two or three of them. But their safeties are as good as anyone in the ACC right now for Miles Brooks and Jay King and C.P. Lee. And then the nickel, K.J. Wallace, is very solid. So I think they have a nice score. The D-line's been getting better and better. The one thing that was probably the two big things that were transitioned from going from Paul to, to Jeff Collins and the one gift that Jeff gave Brent Key is that they really did rebuild the defensive line organically. They did what they should have done with the offensive line, and they signed all these kids right out of the box because they were losing. They had lost so many guys with Paul, and they had gone to the odd front and recruited less. They signed all these big dudes, and they're now getting older. So you have the Zeke Biggers, you have the Daquan Dows, the um, Josh Robinsons. All these dudes are bigger defensive buys. No Collins. They've signed over the last few years. They're now third, fourth year in the program, fifth year. And they look like an, you know, they look like a good college defensive line, and that was the biggest difference for them defensively last year. They were able to press your quarterback for the first time consistently, and command double teams. And if you can do that, you got a chance. You know, you can't cover people forever, and that was the thing that killed them early on. And uh, it's killed a lot of teams in the league if you can't get pressure. So, I think they'll be decent defensively. You know, the offense. I think if the offense, if the offense and the defense are in the top seventy, they'll have a decent season. That's been one of the things that, you know, I'll give Collins and that tenure credit where it's due is that I, I have gotten excited at some of the enormous bodies on the defensive line that they have brought in that I felt like for like a decade under Paul Johnson, they had such a time playing 295 pound nose tackles and, and stuff like this. And it's like, really, you can't find anybody who's like 330, you know, to sit there in the middle. And so that's that's been good to see and, and uh, a nice change. I think makes makes a lot of things easier on your your defensive coordinator and the schemes and such. Yeah, they lost a whole D line class to their basically drug policy at one point. Yeah. In the uh, twenty seventeen class, whatever class that was, sixteen twenty, whatever class that was, like they had three different dudes get bounced out that all ended up playing at other schools. Like, like legit playing. One of them got in trouble for dog fighting and I think's in jail now. But at his next school, but. Um, uh, who was that? I'll there were the, anyways. Uh, the kid that went to East Carolina um, from Maryland. Um, Commission or something like that. Commission? Yeah. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Huh. You uh, think that was when he got in trouble, allegedly. Um, I don't remember. The, I haven't tracked the story well enough. But yeah, all those dudes, they lost an entire D line class and a couple skilled guys in that class because of like, a weird decision made by the administration at the time with with testing and those things like, you know, at a Paul fought, Paul had a lot of uphill battles too, that kind of wore him out. But yeah, he didn't have a ton of Horace Lockett looking dudes out there or Zeke Biggers or, um, you know, even Shymeek Jones is a kid that just got on campus. He's like six foot seven and 300 pounds. Like you're like, he looks like a more in shape Zeke Biggers. It's like, wow. Like this kid's going to be something when he can put weight on, on his upper body. Like, you can see those things, and some of it Brent has done, and some of it, well, a lot of it was Jeff. Jeff did know defensive talent. Jeff knew how to recruit guys. I think where they failed was his offensive coordinator hires, him tinkering with the defense, and 
special teams, and then also the offensive line recruiting philosophy was not good. He had Brent trying to bodge it instead of just taking L's early, signing like seven guys a year, and then people forget too they had like three guys medical out of one the first class they signed. Um, they signed seven O linemen, and only three of them are still on campus now. That thing will hurt you over time. Yep. Uh, Kelly, I wanted to ask you about the quarterback situation. And I know that it's been funny to me a couple things listening to some of the national previews uh, of the ACC. And anytime you talk about Georgia Tech, everyone's just talking like it's just a, an easy assumption that Haynes King is going to be the starter because, well, he was the former high four-star, five-star guy, whatever, you know, out of Texas A&M. Jimbo loved him, like all this stuff. And yet I've heard you say multiple times on multiple programs Right now, Haynes King is the, is the backup. Yeah, it's funny. And uh, like on our rivals rankings, we had Zach Pyron higher rated than Haynes King coming out of high school. People forget Pyron was committed to Baylor and ended up wanting to be closer to home. So he made the decision to reopen his recruitment. And Georgia Tech sort of it sort of just worked out that they fell together. And, and he built a relationship with Brent Key and the OC at the time. And the family liked what. Atlanta had to offer and that was close to home because they're from Alabama and that sort of just happened. Uh, Haynes has a relationship with the Winky, with Chris Winky, the, the quarterbacks coach, co-OC and, and Haynes is, you know, got a lot of talent and so does Zach and Zach has sort of the X factor with the leadership and the moxie piece of it. And to be honest, like I won't be shocked if they both play, but I'd be pretty damn shocked if one of them, if it was just Haynes King outright as a starter all year. And going out of the spring, Zach Pyron had the job at that point. If they were to go play a game, he would start quarterback. And now they're in the competition phase, so we don't know. Like I don't, I couldn't tell you right now one or the other of any of the three is going to be the starting quarterback for sure, because that's all getting figured out now on the field. And that's the one thing about Brent and his staff, they're not going to give anyone anything. you got to go out and earn it. So um, if Haynes ends up being the guy, great. But he was he was not that, like, in the spring. He had a couple nice throws at the beginning of the spring game. He was going against two defense. One of the corners was a walk-on that he was throwing against. There was a lot of stuff that people weren't, like, picking up on and were, like, so impressed with him. And... That's not a knock on Haynes. It's just they put him in a situation to be successful, and then they switched him to the one offense, and he didn't move the ball as well. So, um, you know, all that to say it's an open race between those two guys, really. Zach Gibson's the third guy. They've had to play three quarterbacks, really, the last few years, uh, given the line problems and injuries. So you never know. He's a guy who they figured out a way to win and with him and to limit his – put him in a situation where they didn't ask him to do the stuff that Jeff Sims had to do offensively, and he was able to be successful once they figured that out. So, um, you know, I think they can win games with all three quarterbacks if they had to. I think it's a two-man race with Pyron and King. And my money's on Pyron just based on what I've seen with my own eyes to this point. But I'm not in practice every day, and I'm not watching – and uh, they just put pads on today as we're recording this for the first time. So, you know, that's going to sort all this out. They have two scrimmages left, and Brent, they're going to tax the hell out of those dudes mentally between now and then to figure out who the guy is. What do you think the ceiling is on the quarterback position overall? Because, I mean, we've seen 
some Pyron last year, right? And then he got banged up, of course. And then we saw some Haynes King in a different system and clearly didn't pan out, right? So, like, what do you think the the ceiling on the quarterback position is? Because the reason why I ask this, too, is, like, across the ACC, we're seeing this where you have a guy who hasn't played a lot and then you have a transfer coming in, right, that didn't pan out elsewhere. And I feel like that's a handful of quarterback jobs across the conference. Georgia Tech, of course, is one of them. Yeah, you even have guys that, like, slumped like Van Dyke last year. Yeah, um, yeah or uh, um, the guy that was a Virginia quarterback. Um Oh, Armstrong. Armstrong? Yeah. yeah, Brandon Armstrong yeah. struggled most of the year because his yeah. offensive winner is terrible. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that they need someone just to distribute the ball, and they're not going to be expecting some guy to go throw for 3,500 yards and 40 touchdowns. I think if you can be 2-1 to one on TD interception ratio and – Two, you know, two hundred something yards a game. I think that will be sufficient. They'll be able to run the football, and Brent Keen wants to play. And you know, Buster was with a team that won by running the football at Georgia. I think they're going to try to possess the ball. Brent talked about how they're going to play with tempo and, and try to throttle up and down. And you know, I think there's a way to do that if you're successful in defense. That also changes the math a little bit. If they're in shootouts, then yeah, maybe they are going to have to put more numbers, but. I think generally this is probably a team that's going to be playing, you know, 28, 35 point games inside. Like they're not going to be in the 40s and 50s. So I think that just, you know, two to one TV interception ratio you're looking for, um, you know, 250 yards running from the quarterback. Doesn't have to be crazy stuff, um, just efficiency. They haven't had that in a long time. They just haven't had an efficient normal pocket quarterback to, since what goose like um 22 years ago like and it's been a long time so um they've, they've been through some bad qb play really other than nesbitt and justin thomas who are more of runners um so yeah just you know seeing like just down the middle right like pit offense like type stuff would be pretty solid for them. Like, you know, better Kenny Pickett, like not, not first two year Kenny Pickett, like second, third, fourth year Kenny Pickett, not fifth year Kenny Pickett. Um, <laughs> not asking for a high sixth year, seventh year Kenny yeah. Pickett. That'd be dope though. Yeah. It would be if they got that, but I just think these kids, these guys are growing pains. You know, Haynes is a young dude. It was, did develop at a and It was in a horrible offense. It was, like watching Jeff Collins' offense in the first year at Georgia Tech last year. And then Zach did a nice job with the guy that was head was on a swivel playing for the first time. Like He told me his adrenaline was like so high in the first game he went in that he almost passed out at halftime because like, he just sucked all the life out of himself uh, playing you know football for the first time in college. So, you know, that dude's trying to – this is all first for him. It's first for Haynes at Georgia Tech. Like, I don't know what to expect. They're they're still young guys. Like that's the thing people don't realize either. They're both, you know, they're a year apart. Um, Zach's, you know, Richard freshman. Haynes is, I guess, a true junior this year going into his third year. So like, second year, third year guys. Like not, not Richard senior, not COVID seniors. Like, I think you've got to set realistic expectations. The one thing I was going to bring up, too, that I think is really nice as compared to last year is that you have a starter and a backup. Whichever one's the starter, whichever one's the backup, 
you have a pair of them that if one of them has to go out, if one of them's underperforming, you can keep running basically the same game plan with the backup. Whereas like last year they had injuries and such. They played four different guys primarily, I think. And every one of them basically needed a different game plan. Yeah, you had Jeff Sims, who was a dynamic dual threat quarterback in the traditional Jordan Travis, whatever, like that role uh, at Florida State, like that kind of guy with legs and stuff. And then you had Zach Gibson, who was a straight pocket quarterback with a good arm and but needed time and to be comfortable in the pocket throw. You had Zach Pyron, who was a freshman, kind of you know decent runner, but not great, like decent arm, not great, like sort of – you know, Moxie Quarterback, and then they had uh, Tyson Pumachan, who was, couldn't throw, you know, the ball 10 feet in front of him, but could run pretty well and would come in and run the ball. And they used those three, used those four guys. Uh, you know, once Jeff got hurt, it was the three guys and then two when Pyron broke his collarbone in the Miami game. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. You have three guys now that are more similar. I think Zach Gibson talked about it. He was trying to improve his running because he realized he wasn't going to play in Buster's offense if he couldn't run the ball a little bit better. And he hired a track coach to like work with him um, mm-hmm. on his speed just to see if he could get more out of that. Like that, I think it, they won't have to like blow the offense up when they bring in other guys. And that was the big problem with you know even talking to Chip Long, who had a good relationship with OC last year. He was like, we would have to like blow up what we were doing if we went change quarterbacks too much, and so you know everything you prepared for for that week went out the window as soon as Zach Gibson came in for Jeff Sims. Like, and it's hard to coach that way. And they finally that was a big knock I had on Jeff Collins too. Like, they take Jeff Sims and Tucker Gleason, who are two totally different types of quarterbacks in the same class, and it's like, what are you doing, like? Pick what you want and go after that. If it's a dual threat guy, go sign a dual threat guy. And I think you're seeing that with Brent. Two guys they signed are both traditional quarterbacks, like that, that are committed in this class. Um, and uh, Aaron Filo and um, um, geez, what's, uh, Graham Knowles. Like um, they're they're just you know normal quarterbacks. They're not dual threat guys. They're not guys that are gonna blow you up with their legs. And that's where they want to go, so that's great. Like, have an identity and recruit to that. Strengths and weaknesses of this team, right? So, I mean, we, we got into the defense. We know that, you know, I think you said, what, 15 or 16 of, of the 22 were back. So you got starters and starters in a lot of positions, right? And then depth, obviously, across the defense back. Offensive line, another year of continuity. Quarterback, I don't want to call it a question mark because it's two guys that have played college snaps i think that's important but it's more of a question mark there how do you assess the strengths and weaknesses of this roster just like high level position wise i mean i think um if you want to look at the strengths of it i think the offensive line is seven eight guys deep for the first time since 2016 probably at georgia tech like that's been a perennial issue um tight end positions I would say three and a half deep. Jackson Long's probably close to being a guy who's ready to help. They have Brett Sither and Dylan Leonard, who's been a multi-year starter now, back, and Luke Benson, who's played a lot back. You know, slot receiver, I think they're really talented there. Malik Rutherford and Christian Leary are both really dynamic guys. Um, you know, outside receivers, we're getting into the questions because the production, just not a lot of traditional production there. 
a kid from Duquesne and Abdul Janay. Dominic Blaylock, who played at Georgia some, but battled injuries there. Chase Lane, who was a guy that was productive at A&M early in his career, and then less so later. And then a kid named Eric Singleton they brought in, who's a speedster guy that's uh, going to turn some heads. So, you know, I look at running back as a strength. I think the quarterback position's okay. A little worried about just the outside receiver position. Um, just who's going to be the guy that steps up and is a productive guy there? Is it Someone like even like DJ Moore, who did play last year, um, that redshirted, that's really talented guy they love. I don't know. Um, is it Singleton? Is it the veteran guys that brought in like Lane or Playlock or Janae? And, you know, on the defensive side of the ball, I would say, you know, corners, a, a concern I mentioned already. Getting the production need out of linebackers, those two guys had 250 tackles or whatever it was last year, um, Charlie and Trey Thomas and Ayanda Ely. They're both in the NFL right now. Where do you get that? Charlie Thomas was an eraser, too. That's the thing that people realize with him. Could run sideline to sideline, make plays, strip the ball, intercept the ball, do all kinds of stuff. I remember the year before last, he had, like, the only interception against the FBS team, I think, by Georgia Tech on the defense in 2021. I mean, it's just yeah, some of the stats were unbelievable how bad the defense had been. Stats that can't uh, right. be true but somehow are. like Yeah, I mean, they went, like, a full, like, 16 games or something with an interception from a corner. Um, just, you know, crazy stats. And they got away from that last year and started getting some turnovers and stuff. But I think the D-line's very good. Um, I think they're really talented there finally. I think the nickel safety position's deep and talented. Um, you know, I think they have as good a safety collection of dudes as anyone in the league. You know, the other question I look at is, you know, um, I think Kevin Stewart was a very solid kicker a year ago. David Shanahan really struggled punting. And they had punts blocked, punts returned for touchdowns. That whole thing was a hot mess. They brought in some guys to compete with him. They brought in a very talented special teams coach, Ricky Brumfeld, to work with him. How does that look? Who are the return guys? Because they need to get a little more out of that, too. So those are sort of the areas where I look at it. I'm not as worried about the quarterback position um, as some other people. Let's take a quick second to remind you about Section103.com. It is the Internet's premier place for all things wonderful, wonderful Georgia Tech apparel. They have T-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies. they got a couple of three-quarter shirts. they got buttons, stickers, all sorts of things. Thanks for men, women, children, something for the whole family. Every Georgia Tech fan in your life can use something from Section103.com. Use promo code GOACC for 10% off your first order. Uh, they've got some new things all the time coming. Uh, recently came out with some new player shirts, uh, shirts, you know, shirzies, I guess, as the, as the kids would call them. Uh, things with a logo on the front, a number on the front, and a number on the back, along with a name. They got shirts for both Zach Pyron as well as Dante Smith, who kind of projected to be Georgia Tech's starting quarterback and running back this year. So if you want to support those players, I believe they get some NIL money out of it, too. So just, you know, keep that in mind for what it's worth. Uh, they've got the Junior's Grill shirt. They've got all sorts of great, great products there. They've also recently come out with a clearance section. So if you're looking for some T-shirts or a couple of hoodies for a uh, slightly lower price point, go check out the clearance section. Once again, it is section103.com or at section underscore 103 on Instagram. Give them a follow. Check it out. All things wonderful Georgia Tech apparel. Again, using the official team colors, the official word marks, everything. It is all officially licensed. It is super comfortable, super high quality. 
I love mine. You will love yours as well. Check out the performance wear if you're, you're looking for things to keep you cool here during the summer. In any case, one more time, that is section103.com, the Internet's best place for all things wonderful Georgia Tech apparel. That's it for now. Let's get back to the show. Is there an area, Kelly, that you look at and and you think, you know, the, the starters are looking, or the guys that we figure are going to start, look pretty good. I feel pretty confident there. But the moment somebody gets hurt, the depth is not really there. There's a pretty big drop-off from the starters to the backups that could become a problem at some point. Yeah, um, you know, I would say probably the linebacker position. I think there's four guys there that are pretty good. You know, Dre White and Oliver and Maola and a kid named Trinellis Tatum. Then when you get behind them, there's like zero career snaps behind those four dudes. Like Kyle Eford's played special teams and Richard last year. Tyson Miguez played a little bit of special teams, was hurt his first two years. And then they have three freshmen and a couple of walk-ons. And so, you know, the experience there really falls off. And, and Dre White was hurt throughout a lot of the spring, didn't play in the spring game. Brandon Oliver was a little banged up. Um, I think Paul Maiola has done both Achilles or one Achilles. He had a serious Achilles injury at Notre Dame that ended as how he ended up at Idaho. So, so yeah, those are things that make you a little nervous. Um with those guys and the thing I talk about with the with Andre White and Oliver is like they have played a crap ton of football they're both super seniors and they were in the Big Ten playing a thousand career plus snaps plus all those practices it's a lot of wear and tear on your body at linebacker in a very physical league for both of them one in the SEC and one in the Big Ten so you know what, what point do you, you concerned about breaking down from that and those dudes, you know, they look like older dudes. They're in the ice tubs and <laughs> doing the things you got to do to protect your body. But that makes me a little nervous. So I'd say that's the one position where I'm like, eh, that's it's a little thin. Kelly, let's take a look at the schedule. And I think the one thing that obviously benefits the Jackets is they're missing um, future ACC champion Virginia Tech. Um, I almost got through that. I almost got through that with a straight face. Is it face. wrestling or football? Um, <laughs> or? <laughs> uh, yeah, I bet they're good in wrestling. Very good. Wrestling. Yeah, very, very good in wrestling and uh, women's basketball. That's about it right now. Um, in all seriousness, like you draw Clemson on the road, you draw Georgia. Obviously, these are you know two really tough teams that you know you're getting Clemson on an annual basis. Never good, and then you know you have the rivalry game against Georgia. The redone schedule, you, you don't have Florida State. Like I mentioned, you don't have to, you know, go to Blacksburg, play Virginia Tech. Um, but you look at the schedule, and I do think there are a couple of key swing games in here. Um, opening up on a, you know, it's in Atlanta, but it's a bona fide neutral site game, I guess, against Louisville. I think it's a really important game early in a rebuild, obviously, um, at Louisville, which, you know, Joey and I have mentioned this on a couple of other you know, season previews we've been doing with teams that draw Louisville later in the year. You know, I think getting Louisville from the jump, I think, is a really good time to get them in year one under Jeff Brom. On the road at Ole Miss, uh, I mean, Ole Miss is an SEC team, and we've also seen Ole Miss field better teams than the one they're probably going to field this season, right? Um, Wake Forest replacing a quarterback. Like, there are some winnable games on this schedule. But obviously, you know, having Clemson, having Georgia, having to kind of pencil in two losses off the bat can make things tough. 
Yeah, I mean, if you look at sort of the obvious win games, are probably South Carolina State, Bowling Green, probably Boston College at Virginia, where they've not historically played well, but I think they're, that's in such bad shape that it's a winnable game. And maybe Syracuse. I'm not buying the Syracuse hype that people are selling right now. I think they're. I think this might be it for Dino this year. Um, yep. Either way. And so, yeah, you get the swing game to the big, the two big swing games for me. You know, if you you can survive the loss to Louisville, if you if you can win it at Wake Forest, right? Um, and in week four, and then you got to go down to my, you got to either go down to Miami, beat them, or you got to beat North Carolina at home. And if you do those things, I think they go bowling. And those are sort of, and they got to take care of their business in the other games. And that was the thing Jeff Collins struggled so much with, and where you want to see this team take the next step is beat the teams you're supposed to beat. You know, don't don't screw up and lose to a really bad Syracuse team in the, or in the Carrier Dome or, like, lose to a bad Boston College team on the road in front of no fans. Those two games had no fans. Um, 2020. Those are the games that drive, drove the fan base nuts, losing to the Citadel or a bad Temple team or whatever. I don't think you'll see that with Brent. And... You know, Mississippi's a mess, man. Like, they have 19 new players on defense or something insane like that. Like, you know, they're still bringing players in today. Like, they brought in a former Georgia Tech player the other day, Jonas Griffin, like, who shouldn't have even been in the portal. Um, so like six former Georgia Tech players that have been there since, what, Jeff Collins took over? Like, it's... Yeah, and they're just collecting them for whatever reason, like... It's like Georgia Tech uh, is the AAA is, team for Ole Miss at this point. Like, yeah, and, and like they're not like other than Jared Ivy, they don't make a ton of sense. The ones they've taken, Samari's a very solid corner, but they took the fifth string defensive tackle. They took Jemias, who was the third string running back at Oregon State. Like, I don't quite understand what you're doing, but okay. Yeah, Ole Miss is sort of a mess. That whole thing could spin out on Lane too, but the problem is that game's so early in the season that probably won't have happened by then. Um. You know, the game at Miami, that's a really interesting game to me. Like, what the hell is Miami? Like, they were not very good last year. Georgia Tech should have beat them. If Aaron doesn't break his collarbone, the game's tied in the end of the third quarter. Uh, they were going in to score when he broke his collarbone and threw a pick. So, um, yeah, you know, and they've had North Carolina's number for whatever reason. So, and North Carolina's now in the prove-it-to-me phase of, of their thing. They should be posting the season that NC State does every year, and they somehow can't do it. Yep. And so, like, get get to the nine wins consistently. Like, you are playing a soft schedule. Like, there's no excuse for winning eight games, nine ga- not winning ten games a year there. Like, with the amount of talent they have, like, they just keep losing these terrible games they shouldn't lose. So, yeah, I'm not, you know, that's in Atlanta, like, yeah, Clemson, they've played them tough the last couple of years, even with Jeff coaching. Um, that was a back-and-forth game last year. They should have beat them up at Clemson the year before. You know, I think Clemson's going to be a hell of a lot better, so I think that's going to be a tougher game. But, um, you know, my where I've been placing this is I see them as a 5-7 to seven win team. I think if everything fell in place, you could get to 8. But I think 5-7 five and five to seven wins would you know, his progress, really you want to get to that sixth one, get to the bowl game. I think people would be very excited if they did that. And then you have something to sell now in recruiting, and, and Brent has some momentum behind him if they do that. And that's 
that's where they're at now. They need they need to jump that next barrier. They they've gotten the back to back wins monkey off their back. Now they got to get the the bowl game monkey. There were it was another given all the time. You know for the last what thirty something forty years of the program really consistently is going to bowl game, mm-hmm. and so um, that's got to be the goal. And and the kids are aiming higher than that, but um, you know. I, Show me you can do that, and we'll talk about other stuff. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I, I look at this, and I think if you just put a list of, of team names and logos on here and say this is their schedule, it looks tough. And I'm not going to say it's not, but I think for, for the names and logos that are on that schedule, it's it's about as forgiving as maybe you could have asked for. Again, you mentioned getting Louisville early getting uh, Boston College at home off a of bye. You get Syracuse late in the year. Like, you know, you, there's a few of these that I feel like you catch at fortunate times that set up about as well as you could have asked for that I think maximize your opportunity to get to that bowl game. That's kind of the one thing that sticks with me with this schedule. Yeah, the one weird one's sort of that Miami game because they have a bye before that game. And they play A&M, but they don't really play anyone before that. I think they have a game at, like, Temple or something. So they'll have not really played anyone before. Uh, they play the Red Hawks, I think, to open the season. But, like, um, they're not playing here on a two-game winning streak in Miami, by the way. In Miami. Oh, really? That's funny. They beat them in 19, and then they almost beat them in 21, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I just don't know what to make of that. Like, he, he literally hired the worst – combination of coordinators I could imagine his first year. So I, I don't know what Cristobal's up to. Um, hopefully to I, I don't even know who's coordinators. They all got fired and then they all got hired so late in the process that I'm, I don't even remember who he's hired to be his coordinators at this point. So um, I haven't gotten into studying that since I was like five weeks into the season. I'm not not down on studying, studying up on the Canes yet. But um yeah, it's just weird. I, you know, last year the teams I thought would be hard, some of them weren't, some of them were. So it's one of those things. I thought Duke was going to be terrible last year. I mean, that guy did one of the greatest coaching jobs I've ever seen um, mm-hmm. in the ACC, Mike Elko. So can someone pull that off? Is it the guy at BC who almost got fired because his AD is kind of crazy? Like, um, and wants to bring in his own dude, like, had one down here. He was kind of considered the hot shot coach in the league, doing a lot with a little. You know, Wake Wake's going to be a tough out. Like, you just don't know, man. I don't know what to make of this league. I know Clemson's going to be good, and I think Florida State's probably going to be good just because Florida State doesn't play a lot of people. And aside from that, I think picking three, four, five is pretty hard right now. Um that's why people have Louisville winning nine, ten games because they don't play anyone. Like you look at their schedule, it's like, what is, what are, where are the hell's coming on paper, you know? And Brom's considered a good coach, even though he had clunkers at Purdue. Um, you know, really, if they survive that NC State Notre Dame part of their schedule, then they're in pretty good shape. So, I, you know, I'll be interested to see what this all looks like. I just. And, and the the other thing that's so hard now, too, is the portal, and everyone's so portal-heavy that you don't know what that looks like and how much teams change from year to year and, like, who's on what team. And, you know, Sam Hartman's at Notre Dame, and how's Mitch Griffiths do, or how does 
you know, Brennan Armstrong go to his new school or like whatever, like those things are all super weird and you got to figure it out. I feel like there are just a bunch of teams in the ACC and Joey and I are, you know, moving through these previews, these season previews and really outside of Clemson and Florida state. I feel like every team we've talked about, at least so far, we've been like, yeah, anywhere between five and seven wins. And it's like, I I think Georgia Tech's another one of those teams. And somebody needs to come out of that pack and win seven. And it might be Georgia Tech, right? Like, I I mean, it could be Georgia Tech. It could be BC. It could be Louisville. I mean, it could be uh, Syracuse. Like, who knows? Like, Duke. Like, there's so many. ACC, baby. It's what, it's why people hate the league. (laughs) They're struggling. It's, there's like not enough, you know, Miami sucking for the last 25 years has been, probably the biggest thing that's hurt the ACC and then Florida state getting bad for about six for about nine of the last 25 years. Like yeah. those, that combination was not good for a league and then VT and Georgia tech falling down the, the, at the same time. I think the ACC has the potential to have one of their most ACC years yet. And I don't think it's going to get the national attention it deserves. If Florida state and Clemson are as good as they're supposed to be, you know, cause I really think the rest of the teams, we, underneath we were going to miss the coastal chaos, dude. I, this would be the year for it. Like <laughs> imagine like you would have, who would be the favorite if it was in the coastal this year, it'd be North Carolina, I guess. Carolina like, probably. But Pitt's going to uh, probably be the be team my, that win nine games, nine games. God. Yeah. Dude. Look, God, look, like, today ends in Y, it would be Miami. Like, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, and, you know, Virginia, Virginia Tech would be picked last. Like, Yep. And Georgia Tech would probably be picked actually below Virginia Tech because Virginia Tech has more media people at the ACC kickoff <laughs> than Georgia Tech does. And so they get that slight bump. Um, I saw those but, media yeah, rankings I, that came out. I was like, I got a problem with like half of these. These are these are all wrong. Well, I don't know if yeah. you saw. Like, I went nuts on Twitter about the guy from Clemson that didn't start last year at safety. That was the preseason all safety. There were like three other dudes, including Miles Brooks at Georgia Tech, who was like number three in Pro Football Focus last year. Safeties in the country, number one in the ACC. It's like. This guy played corner in some games for Clemson and didn't start at safety and was good like two years ago. And he got, if you look at the vote counter, it's clearly the number of Clemson media that were in attendance at ACC kickoff because they give you a little vote tally. It's like that dude probably got it by like three votes because Clemson sent like 37 people to the ACC kickoff. (laughs) And there were like six of us covering Georgia Tech or whatever. That tracks. Yeah, the Clemson Kelly. Mafia. <laughs> so, Kelly, it sounds like you're somewhere between, call it five and seven, seven and five, somewhere in that range. Are you going to commit to any one record, or are you just giving me a range? Six and six. Six and six. six and six. God, no. Then they'll lose the bowl game, so they don't finish. <laughs> Naturally. They'll go to the, like, what, what is the worst bowl now for the Fenway Bowl? Is that the worst one? Oh, gosh. You play in Fenway Park in mid-December. I would like it because I have family up there, but. Um, like. I don't know what the, you know, I, I've they've been so bad that I've forgotten what the bowl tie-ins now are mm-hmm. for, like the ACC because it's been four years since Georgia Tech played in one. Mm-hmm. Um, El Paso, and go to the Sun Bowl. Yeah, that I love. I love El Paso. That's actually like one of my favorite trips. It would probably be like the Birmingham Bowl or the Gasparilla Bowl oh. or something oh. like that. Or Gasparilla Bowl. Let's go. What's the one in Fort Worth? The first responder bowl, oh, maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
They play on one of those like ones that's like December fifteenth. It's like during the middle of Georgia Tech's finals, they're going to play ball game in Fort Worth and like score like no Fort points. Worth, I might actually make it to that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I, again, I don't mind Dallas either. I just you know the Wasabi Fenway Bowl is not really high up on my list of places. There's one called the Pop Tart Bowl. What the hell is that? Like, which bowl is that? Oh, that's the Cheez It Bowl that got rebranded this year. That's Cheez It Bowl. Yeah. Oh, is that the Cheez It Bowl? Okay. Which is also the former Russell Athletic Bowl, I think. So and... that's the one in Orlando that's not the Citrus Bowl. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Because we've now had two separate Cheez It Bowls. <laughs> so that's competing Cheez It Bowls. Even more confusing. Yeah. Like there's still the Duke Duke's Mayo Bowl, so we're doing okay yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's uh, that's the one you want to be in if you're not in the New Year's Six, pretty much. I think that one might be gone this year. I think that one might have rebranded. No. Duke's Mayo? I think it might have. Hold huh. on, let me look. This is important. Important. The one that I would like to go to, to be honest, probably the one I would like to go to is San Diego. Um, mm. I think that would be fun. My wife would be down for that. Um Speaking of which, I, former bowl games that were incredible, uh, the San Diego County Credit Union Poinsettia Bowl had no ACC ties, but uh, one of the greatest bowl games. Now it does. And now it does. Yes. Now Holiday it does. Bowl. Yeah. You'll play what's left of the Pac-12 for now. Uh, this, this is probably the last year of that, one, that bowl alliance. Yeah. Um, I mean, the Rose Bowl is about to be relegated to, like, uh, a kickoff game and August or something. The Big Ten Challenge now? Is that the uh, yeah. Rose Bowl? Is that like the Big Ten kickoff game? Yeah, yeah they're just going to call the Rose Bowl Rivalry Week in the Big Ten. It's going to be annoying. I am pleased to inform you it is still the Mayo Bowl. So. Oh, thank God. Okay. We still have that. Yeah. The We're Wasabi Friendway Bowl should be a, a boot. <laughs> Birmingham <laughs> Bowl is actually people. not terrible, by the way. I've covered a couple of those. Just wait oh. till all the people find out the Wasabi Fenway Bowl is not sponsored by the Japanese condiment. That's actually a... Oh, yeah, I remember that. We oh, is it something else? I, I assumed it was like the Wasabi Growers of America or whatever. It's like a finance company or like... Is it really? Okay. Yeah, something Yeah, something most like of that. the things like I don't... Like I know what Bad Boy Mowers is and mm. but I don't know like the Military Bowl sponsor. I don't know what that is. Uh, the one... I don't even know what the hell the ReliaQuest Bowl is. I don't even know which bowl that is. <laughs> is that one in Nashville? Or is that Jacksonville? Is that the Gator Bowl? Yeah, I couldn't tell. They, you. I bet they, that's the Gator Bowl. I bet that one's the Gator Bowl. All of yeah, the for a while, they for a while they did away with the Gator Bowl, and they were calling it the Tax Layer Bowl. And people got so mad after three years, they started calling it the Gator Bowl again. Now it was just a tax. Oh no, the ReliaQuest Bowl is a bowl game in Tampa, Florida. It used to be the Outback Bowl. Oh my God, what are oh, we wow. doing with these bowls? <laughs> At least they could keep like the old name in, and then I would have like a hope. Of like remembering what it is, like the San Diego Credit Union Holiday Bowl. I remember what that is. Yeah. Oh, the tax, it's still the Tax Slayer Gator Bowl. I just didn't see it on this list. Beautiful. <sighs> Tony the Tiger Sun Bowl. That's so disgraceful. The Sun Bowl is a beautiful, fun like event to go to. Like El Paso is an awesome town. Great eating, um, fun trip. Snowed the last time I was there. They beat Lane Kiffin with his black eye. Georgia Tech in the Against USC, they've been the preseason number one team and were now relegated to playing in the Sun Bowl, and their players bitched about it in the local newspaper in El Paso, so all their fans, showed, all the locals showed up to boo them and root for Georgia <laughs> in the bowl game. It was a tremendous day. And I then Tevin, 
Tevin Washington outpassing the five-star quarterbacks of USC in the bowl game who looked like they were like throwing with the wrong arm. Lane was wearing the official outfit of being like badly hungover that day. (laughs) He looked about as hungover as he did SEC media days. Um, And I remember the media lady almost tackling me because I was taking a picture of uh, Lane Kiffin to send my buddy who covers USC with his black eye who wasn't at the game because he finally (laughs) took the sunglasses off in the presser. And I guess she was trying to protect him or something. And I was like, <laughs> it was like early iPhone or might even been like a Android phone or something. I had, and I was trying to take a picture of him and she got mad. I was like, lady, I've been here the last two straight years. You should at least remember who I am at this point. Like, <laughs> Frequent flyer at this point. Yeah. Cause I had put like something on. So my credentials covered up cause it was freaking 40 degrees. Mm. And, um, she thought I was like some fan taking a picture of Lane Kiffin, I guess. It's black eye. Michael Times, note, yeah. <laughs> do you have a record it's better prediction? Better than the Detroit Bowl or whatever the hell that was called. <laughs> my worst bowl experience I've had. Oh. Nah, the I... one in Shreveport was the worst one. Though, mm-hmm. They lost to Air Force. It's the worst bowl oh, game. I remember that one. Shreveport, Louisiana. They lost because they dropped three punts in the game. I was cursing in front of my grandmother watching that. So, that, yeah, that went well. Season derailed because uh, your boys <laughs> broke Josh Nesbitt's arm in, mm-hmm. uh, in their boat racing them on Thursday night in Lane Stadium. That was about to be their first loss in that game in Lane Stadium. Nesbitt broke his arm and thrust young Kevin Washington into the starting lineup, and then they proceeded to lose like four straight games. Sean Bedford told me, by the way, it was like second drive that he was in. Uh, with with Tevin, that he had to grab him by the face mask in the huddle and yell at him to start yelling the play calls at the top of his lungs because Tevin looked scared to death. And it was like, no, no, no. Yeah, no, no. it was like they just ran like the dive like 14 straight plays or something because Tevin was so freaked out. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it was that was that was a weird. I was not at that game either because there was a whole issue with the Virginia Tech credentialing system and they weren't credentialing electronic media. And I didn't know the loophole that everyone else was using to call like a local radio station and request credentials through a radio station. <laughs> so, and the Probably guy literally call. told me that had I done that, I would have gotten credentials. He was like, I was like, if you're telling me this, why don't you just give me the damn credentials? I was like, I literally. <laughs> Make things like, easier. Skip the steps. Yeah. Like, what are we doing? And then they finally changed it like the next year. But oh, the memories of covering weird Georgia Tech football. Of which there has been plenty. And the old days of the coastal battle of the techs deciding the coastal division. We had fun with that one, didn't we, Joey? Oh, plenty. That's yeah. That's one of the, the slights towards this podcast is getting rid of that annual game. I know. Yeah, the, 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 the kicker should have been in jail that beat Georgia Tech in overtime or whatever. Cody Janelle. I was a sophomore. Yeah, on the Cody Labor Day Janelle. game. Yeah. Yep. That was another favorite of mine. I was like, this dude's been kicked off the team like four times. Why is he still like in college? Like, let alone kicking in this game. Dude could not stop snorting cocaine. And <laughs> it just didn't matter to me as long as he made kicks, which he did not do very often, but he did in that game, which I was very happy about. against Georgia Tech. Yeah. Virginia Tech was, was, you know, we were all fired up about that game, and they made it all the way to like six and six. So that was, that was real cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, the last year was a Beamer. Um, I am going to make a record prediction. 
and I'm stuck between five and six wins. I think the Louisville game in the opener is a huge swing game for bowl eligibility, and it seems silly because it's the very first one. You got eleven more after that. It just seems silly to call that game the swing game. But I, I look at the schedule, and you know, Kelly, I think you hit the nail on the head with kind of the ones you can almost pencil in as wins, right? South Carolina State, Bowling Green, BC coming off a bye because I'm with you guys. I'm I'm selling BC, and then. At Virginia, like Virginia, I think is going to be really, 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 really bad. And then Syracuse is kind of a crapshoot because, you know, I I think Schrader, he certainly, he certainly looked good with a different offensive coordinator. Now Jason Beck, I don't know if that's going to continue, right? With Robert, is he playing Week fourteen either? Like, is he he still playing? Is he yeah. playing then? Like, is Syracuse's yeah. offense, like, what did they even look like? Because with Jason Beck at quarterback, or uh, Jason Beck is the offensive coordinator, uh, he had his quarterback, Garrett Schrader, throw it 51 times in the bowl game, which was 15 more than his career high. So were they going to just go air raid with Garrett Schrader now that Sean Tucker's not in the backfield? That doesn't seem like the greatest idea in the world. So, like, what's Syracuse even going to be then? Um, so, I mean, that, that's that's five games I just named, right? The thing is, I think Georgia Tech probably drops one of them. But here's the thing, too. Like, I think Georgia Tech probably also wins one that we're looking at on the schedule is like, not an automatic gimme. Like, could they beat Wake on the road in September? Certainly. Like, they're still going to be figuring out quarterback. Like, is Mitch Griffiths going to replace Sam Hartman and be, like, the adequate replacement? I don't know that you can replace Sam Hartman and kind of what he brought to the table is, you know, a... a fourth year guy last year and now going into a fifth year at Notre Dame like he's probably Griffiths probably isn't going to be that guy in his first full year as a starter but Wake Forest's offense under Clawson is kind of personnel agnostic it seems like he always just seems to get the best out of his guys and I think the scheme's pretty good for the players they recruit and it's on the road but like is that a game you can pick off maybe right at Miami <laughs> I have the same questions about Miami as you guys do kind of a crapshoot Georgia Tech always seems to play Miami tough like I think going on the road there is not really like going on the road elsewhere in the ACC I think you can certainly go on the road there and win um North Carolina it's like put up or shut up time you know so I mean there's just other games on the schedule where I look at and I'm like all right Georgia Tech might not go into that game as a favorite but I think they can certainly pick one of those games off I'm just not confident like they're 100% going to win the five games they should win. So I'm just going to settle on five and seven, but I'm with you guys. I think the five to seven win range is where they're at because I think if they run the gamut and win the five, they're supposed to win. It's not that hard to get to seven, like pick off Louisville in the opener and then beat wake on the road or steal one against North Carolina. Like it's really not that difficult to, to see how this team gets to a bowl game or even gets to seven wins. So I'm going to go five and seven just because I'm not sure how quarterback's going to pan out. I'm just going to hedge a little bit, but I think this is certainly a team that can make a bowl game. Joe, you're going 10 wins, right? 10, <laughs> ten, ten, wins, two, right. ten and two. Only lose 14, to, 15 and or whatever. Only lose to Clemson right. and Georgia. You know, wish they would have started the 12-team playoff this year, that whole thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, nah, I'm with you guys. Like five, and, five, five to seven wins feels like the right range. Um, I, I think I was on the the – podcast for from the rumble seat where i used to write and I, I think i told him like the absolute ceiling that i could see if everything goes right i would maybe say eight and four 
And I think yeah, I mean, I've put them at five to eight wins. I feel like that's sort of the even four to eight wins. I think is the window, right? Like, yeah, if you're being like brutally honest, like Mm -hmm. if everyone sucks in the league or they just catch breaks or whatever, lightning in a bottle with something, eight wins. And then if you know both quarterbacks get hurt or whatever, you have a bunch of injuries, then four. And I think below that, then you know people are gonna already be annoyed with Brandt, unfortunately, for him, because they've just been so bad for so long. Yeah. I was, I was going to say, yeah, I, I I would probably put the floor for what I would reasonably expect at four wins. And and if anything worse than that happens, like, I'm probably starting to have some questions of, like, did I buy too much in on this coaching hire? Like, you know, that, there's some real questions, I think, being asked. Um, or just something has gone horribly wrong injury-wise or something shock like that. Me. It would shock yeah. me. I'll I'll say six and six as well though, and but the reason I bring up the four thing being the floor is that I am still seeing the win total out there in Vegas at four and a half, mm-hmm. and you can get no, plus yeah, they money, think, yeah, plus money on the over. Yeah, I mean, I think if you were inclined to gamble, I would say that's a reasonable bet to make. Like, I, I, the ACC is hard to gamble on unless you're betting on Clemson, because um, even Florida State, if you go back and look what they did, that it was beating up on the Sisters of the Poor in the second half of last year. Like, yep. I mean, Norvell's seat was getting hot in the middle of the year, and then they went on their run. It really started with Georgia Tech, I think it was. Um, mm-hmm. And kind of beat up on bad teams at the end of their season. And so, yeah, I don't I don't know. Like, I don't know who the number two team is. I think it's Florida State just based on talent, but Louisville doesn't play anybody. Like, NC State, that guy – I refer. I now have a nickname for Dave Doran, which is I call him the cockroach of the ACC. <laughs> just survives, and you cannot kill him. And when you think you've got him cornered, he finds a way to like keep winning and get that contract extension. That was Narduzzi and Adazio even for a while, unfortunately. Yeah, Narduzzi is interesting because he just, they do a lot with a little man. You know, they just are really a tough team to beat. They don't. That's what Brent brought last year. They didn't beat themselves, right? And that's what. Um, what you like about, you know, I think that's, you know, what Sam Pittman's doing at Arkansas to a lesser extent. Like, a lot of these O-line coach type personality guys or defense coordinator guys that are tough, hard-nosed guys, they'll bring a team that's like that in this day and age. It sometimes is enough to win. Georgia Tech basically won because of that. Like, kids just believe that they had a shot. And that was something Brent talked about at ACC kickoff. He said when he took the job that, there were games that they had gone into in the past where the players and the coaches didn't even think they had a shot going into the game, and you can never do that. Like that's one of the fun, most fundamental tenets of being, you know, playing this sport is you got to believe you have a shot when you go on the field. I remember hearing the story from the 2008 Georgia game where they were down 28 to 12 at halftime, and I don't know, I don't know if it was Sean Bedford or Roddy Jones or someone told this story that they. They went into the locker room. They had the whole speech, you know, got snacks, you know, did whatever they do. They come back out, and right before they, they leave the tunnel, Paul Johnson turns around and says, if anybody here does not believe that we can win this game right now, turn around, go, go back in the locker room, you know, take your pads off, you know, you're done. It's like, if you come out here, you better believe that we can win this game. And next thing you know, I mean, they had the lead by, like, the middle of the third quarter, basically. And that, that, I'm with you. I, <laughs> how do you, how do you yeah. coach not believing that you can win? Some people do, man, and it's a shame. And 
Um, I think that was part of their problem is that I think Jeff believed so much in that they had all these obstacles and wasn't the right guy for the job that he lost the plot that you got to instill confidence in your team that you can, they have to see it and believe it in you too. I think they thought he was full of crap after a while, the kids and the coaches and it death spiraled on them. As soon as they hit adversity, they folded up typically. And that's not a way to run a program. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'll be curious to see what it looks like. I have no idea. I have no expectations. My one expectation now at least is that I go into a game and I think they have a fighter's chance again, which I haven't really felt like since Paul Johnson retired. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's good for Georgia Tech fans. If you believe you can win, you have a shot, then you've got a puncher's chance. Yep. I, I completely agree. Uh, Kelly, do you have another minute? I want to ask you about one more thing that I'm kind of curious to get sure. your take on. You're not going to ask me about conference realignment, are you? <laughs> I have no interest in talking about that right now. Uh, the, the one, the one other thing that has, has kind of stuck out to me that I found is very interesting about the way that Brent Key talks. And I know that there was somebody that asked him at media days, you know, what are you, are you expected to win this many games? Uh, you know, are you expecting this? Are you expecting that? And he, he basically, he always goes back to, we got to focus on the way that we practice every day on our preparations and all this stuff. And it, it sounds very much what I understand is like Saban esque. Um, yeah in a way of, you know, we're not preparing for our opponent. We're focusing on our technique and the way that, you know, we play the game and all this stuff. Does, does that track with you, resonate with you, like the way that he talks about that? I, I, I know it seems very authentic, but, like, does it resonate with you the way that he talks about that, and do you think that that makes an impact on the team? Yeah, I think it's this expectation of if you do your job, we will have an opportunity to win a game. And so everyone has to do their job, all 11 guys on the field, at any given moment. If you execute your one part of things, something good is most likely going to happen. And so that's that Nick Saban philosophy, right? Like attention to detail and be detailed in everything that you do. And it gets into things like him, you know, he quadrupled the nutrition budget for the team, like, and hired two people to help the nutritionist make sure that the players had you know, they have like fresh fruit during practice now to help hydrate and get their blood sugar up and stuff like that. Like just those little things, those are all saving things. Saving, you know, there were rumors of them doing like blood testing to see what like people needed to eat and things like that. And then carving diets based on genetics and all those kinds of things in Alabama. Like that's always been sort of the rumbling that there's all the science sort of behind and I think he's not far from that. Like, he believes in some aspects of the science thing. But at the, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's if you do your job and everyone on the field does their job, you have an opportunity to win the game. And so I think that um, it's not lip service. It's definitely his credo and, like, how he's been. And I think O'Leary was like that as well, who he worked for, too, like, and, and being tough. And that's why they moved practice to the afternoon for camp, like, it was miserable out there today. Like we were sweating like crazy, like just watching them. And, and, you know, they take breaks. They figured out that the AC actually works in the indoor, which for some reason they didn't know was working. Um, so that was actually, it's actually nice in there. So when they go in, they actually get a real break. Um, just, you know, like those little things, I think it's, um, I think Brent is very genuine. And that's the thing that I've appreciated since I've you know, gotten to know him over the last 
four or five years. Um, everything, every conversation I've had with them, private, personal stuff or football related has been very genuine and honest. And he's very genuine and honest, even about our relationship and how it works and, and his expectations and, and, you know, like him understanding that it is transactional um, to an extent, but we have a friendship, but it is also a business friendship. It's not like we're going to go hang out at the beach or something. So I think it's cool. Like he get all, all of those things make a lot of sense to me and are the traits I've seen in successful coaches, Paul Johnson and other people that have been around Mark Rick. Like he has some of, some of that X factor stuff. And I think it just didn't come out because he was always the O-line coach who was grumpy and losing his voice. And that's the nature of that job. Mike, I'm good. Anything else? Good on my end. Kelly, this has been awesome. Really, really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, happy to come on. You want to tell the people real quick where they can find your stuff? Sure. uh, On what was formerly called Twitter. I don't know what the hell it's called now. Um, Kelly underscore Quinlan. I started threads. I'm not using it yet, but that's like jackets online, Instagram. I don't, not big on that. I got to start doing it now because it sounds like Twitter's dying. Um, Jacketsonline.com is where you will find my work um, on the Rivals Network covering Georgia Tech. Um, We talk about all this stuff on the message board. We consider it basically a version of Cheers, the bar, where you walk in and talk about your whatever's going on in the world. Uh, We have a, even for people who want to talk politics, I actually have a thread that I do not touch that where people can scream at each other about politics. So, like, we get into everything. Um, Barbecue threads, whatever, like, and then traditional coverage, scoop on what's going on with the team, insider information, all those things that you can't find anywhere else is on Jackets Online. It's the pre-minute site for Georgia Tech Athletic sports coverage yep a lot of recruiting coverage as well continues to be a big Uh, russell and does a great job and i help out there as and then we have russell who helps with basketball recruiting so we have a good staff of people um just very excited that to maybe have some more competitive products to cover for the next few years again absolutely as i tell people all the time if you care enough about georgia tech football to be listening to this podcast it is well worth your $100 a year. So go subscribe to jacketsonline.com if you have not already. Yeah, Kelly has been all- than like a Chick-fil-A meal, I think, these days mm-hmm. probably. Yeah, like once a month or so. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Kelly, has been awesome. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time here. Thanks, guys. Yes, sir. All right, Mike, let's get out of here. We're going to go back and preview some more teams. In the meantime, come find us on Twitter. I'm at FTRS Joey. Uh, sorry, Twitter. X, whatever we're calling it these days. I'm at FTRS Joey. He's at Mike McDaniel SI, together at BC Podcast ACC. And once again, go find Kelly Quinlan on Twitter, at Kelly underscore Quinlan, or at Jackets Online, I believe is the, uh, the Twitter handle you mentioned. Uh, we are on uh, iTunes, Spotify, all the good places you go find your podcast. Go find us there. Send us an email, basketballconferencepodcast at gmail.com. Nailed it. Thank you. Mike, where else on the social medias? Facebook, facebook.com slash basketball conference rate review. Find some of the podcasts there. Occasionally, yes. Please do. Please do appreciate yes. that. And Instagram as well at BC Podcast ACC. If you haven't already subscribed on YouTube, do that too. YouTube.com slash at the ACC football podcast. We appreciate that. Uh, Mike, anything else? Did I forget anything? I think we're good. Kelly, appreciate it, man. No problem, guys. All right. 
for that guy, Mr. Mike McDaniel, and for Mr. Kelly Quinlan, I am Joey Weaver. Thank you guys so much for listening. We will talk to you again soon. Until next time, go Jackets and go ACC.